from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's the Louisa Beck from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, April 19th. Today, how the president's aides saved him from himself. What happens when an industry becomes its own regulator and cookbooks for cannabis. If you were, you know, living in a coma for the last two years and woke up and the first thing you read was this Mueller report, you would have a completely different shocked reaction than we do now. And it's because the report just adds to and confirms so much of what we already know about the fuming and raging of the president of the United States. And yet it's so powerful because these accounts are on the record. White House reporter Phil Rucker has been covering the president's reaction to the findings of the Mueller report. There are two major takeaways. One is that Russia orchestrated a pretty extensive campaign to influence the 2016 presidential election. And in fact, the Trump campaign was willing to accept some of that help. The second volume is all about the president's actions while he's in office and the efforts, the many different efforts that were unsuccessful, but efforts nonetheless to stop the investigation, to thwart it, to fire Robert Mueller, the special counsel. And though we already knew many of these things, Phil says that the special counsel's report is still revelatory. It's a definitive narrative for history that's been produced by an unimpeachable, venerated former FBI director known for his impartiality, which is one of the reasons why it's so difficult, I think, for Trump and his aides to uh, discredit the narrative that Mueller put together. And how has the president and the White House responded to the fact that all of these efforts are now being aired in this report? It's funny. At first, the president tweeted that Game of Thrones meme and said game over. But then very quickly... But then it seems like people actually started reading the report. No, 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 no. The game was not over. Uh, We started reading the report and realizing, oh, my goodness, there's really damaging and derogatory information here about the president's behavior. Clearly, Mueller and Attorney General Barr did not charge the president. But nonetheless, this is bad behavior. And it's a portrait of malfeasance in the White House that we have not seen since the Nixon administration. As that became clear in the cable TV commentary and the stories that we were producing, the president, you could tell, was getting more and more agitated. He was trying to direct people on Twitter to watch Fox News. And then this morning, he tweeted calling it a crazy Mueller report and and saying that some of the notes that his aides like Counsel Don McGahn provided to the investigators may have been made up or fabricated. But to our knowledge, that is that is not true. That's correct. Much of the Mueller report is based on interviews that were conducted under oath, under the penalty of perjury, and on the record by these aides. And he also did the investigation based on notes, contemporaneous memos that various officials wrote documenting some of these moments, as well as emails that were exchanged in other documents. So when it comes to these efforts to obstruct the Mueller investigation, why weren't they ultimately successful? They were not successful because the people around the president did not follow through with his orders and his directives. And there are a couple examples of that. There was a night when Trump is at Camp David and he calls White House counsel Don McGahn at his home and tells McGahn, I want you to call Rod, meaning Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, and tell Rod that Mueller has a conflict of interest, that Mueller can no longer be the special counsel, effectively get rid of Mueller. And Trump made this call twice to McGahn. And after 
after the second time, McGann decided, you know what, I'm going to resign. I would rather resign my job than follow through on what the president wants done. He got so far as to drive to the White House, to pack up his belongings in a box, to prepare a resignation letter. Mm -hmm. He called Reince Priebus, then the chief of staff, and Steve Bannon, the White House strategist, to tell them he was going to resign. And they, of course, pleaded with him not to resign and talked about how important it was that he stay in the job. He ended up staying in the job, coming back to work on Monday, and the president didn't bother him again about that phone call to Rosenstein. But it shows the pressure that these White House officials were under to follow through on orders from the president that they knew to be illegal. And there are other examples of this where basically the people around the president were the ones who were saying, no, I'm not going to do this. That's right. One of the craziest examples, I think, is that the president asked Corey Lewandowski, who we know to be his first campaign manager, but he's not a government official. He's a private citizen, a friend of the president's, an outside political ally. He asked Corey Lewandowski to deliver a message to Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, saying, you need to resign, effectively firing the attorney general. That is so sort of out of bounds of the norms of how the government works, but it's also a little crazy if you think about it. And Corey Lewandowski realized realized how troubling that was. He didn't actually deliver the message to Sessions. Instead, he told an intermediary, Rick Dearborn, who was a White House official and a former Sessions aide, and Dearborn ended up not doing anything with that information. So why did all of these people choose not to follow the president's orders? I think a couple of reasons. They knew, first of all, enough about the law to know that following through with these orders was possibly criminal activity, that it would be obstructing justice. They also didn't want to themselves become an actor in all of this. They didn't want to make themselves vulnerable to legal jeopardy. So they would absorb what the president said and then kind of forget about it and not take any action on it. But it's interesting. They very rarely actually challenged the president to his face. Hmm. So they very rarely would say, you know, no, Mr. President, we can't do this, or no, Mr. President, that is illegal. I'm not going to do that. So if these efforts by the president to try to interfere with the investigation, if they raised a red flag for the people around Trump, then why are these efforts not considered attempts to obstruct justice? The legal analysis that the special counsel provides in the report is a little complicated and nuanced, but there are a couple things that Mueller was not able to prove. He couldn't prove that the president had a criminal intent. He could show, obviously, that these were actions that the president ordered to obstruct justice, but were they musing? or were they actually orders and directives? It didn't so much matter from a legal perspective that the aides didn't follow through with them because somebody can be charged with obstruction of justice simply by proposing something or thinking of an idea or having an intent. But Mueller wasn't able to prove the president's intent. One of the reasons, by the way, it was difficult to establish what the president was thinking and wanting to do at that time is the president didn't submit for an interview with the special counsel, and this was a strategy of the president's lawyers. He did not do the interview. He submitted some written questions, but they were only about the conspiracy part of the investigation. The, you know, did the Trump campaign collude or, or, or conspire with Russia during the campaign? They were not about his conduct in office. And so Mueller was never able to interview the president. In the president's written responses to the questions from the special counsel, what did he say? 
It's so interesting. This is actually an appendix at the end of the Mueller report. You can see the full text of all the questions that were asked of President Trump and then all of his written answers that he prepared, of course, with his lawyers. And it's stunning how many times the president said, I can't recall. I don't recall. I cannot be certain. I don't remember that moment. I don't remember. I don't recall. It's just such a strange acknowledgement from a man who will be the first to tell you he has the world's greatest memory. So he remembers everything, but he can't remember remember it when it comes to a conspiracy to illegally conspire with a foreign country. One of the interesting things about this report is the way in which many of the episodes that are recounted actually confirm what what you all have previously reported. Can you talk about some of those incidents that you understand even better now because of this report? Yeah. So one of our big scoops in 2017 at the Washington Post was the president aboard Air Force One dictating an unknowingly false statement about his son Don Jr.'s meeting at Trump Tower with a Russian lawyer. And the scene that we depicted in our story was of the president with Hope Hicks at his side uh, dictating essentially a lie, a misleading statement about that meeting being about adoptions when we know it was about providing dirt on Hillary Clinton. Now, at the time, after we published our story, which was based on uh, a number of confirmations from different people with knowledge of the events, at the time, the White House said it was not true. Sarah Sanders said at the podium in a press briefing room, the president did not dictate that statement. He was involved in the statement, but he did not dictate it. It's wrong to say he dictated it. Well, sure enough, we learn in the Mueller report that he actually did dictate that statement. Mueller uses the word dictate in his narrative constructing this event and has evidence, including an interview with Hope Hicks, who was a firsthand witness of that entire scene. And then there was also that moment where, back in May of 2017, Sarah Sanders had publicly said that the firing of James Comey was something that countless members of the FBI said that they were thankful and grateful for. And it turns out that that was not true. Sarah, you said from the podium yesterday that Director Comey had lost the confidence of the rank and file of the FBI. On Capitol Hill today, the acting director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, directly contradicted that. Well, I can speak to my own personal experience. I've heard from countless uh, members of the FBI that are grateful and thankful for the president's decision. But I've certainly heard from uh, a large number of individuals, and that's just myself, and I don't even know that many people in the FBI. That was completely fabricated, uh, according to the Mueller investigation. I remember that press briefing. It was the day after Comey was fired as FBI director, and Sarah said repeatedly that FBI agents had been contacting the White House. After she said she'd heard from countless FBI agents, I remember Mike Shear, our colleague at the New York Times, saying, really? And and I'm, I'm not trying to be overly combative here, but you said now today, and I think you said again yesterday, that you personally have talked to countless FBI officials, employees, since this happened. Correct. I mean, really? Like, I mean, I, I, I mean, really? I mean, so are we talking between like email, like, text messages? Like absolutely. 50, yes. 67. I, I mean, gonna, like, look, we're not going to get into a numbers yeah. game. I, I mean, I have heard from a large number of individuals that work at the FBI that said that they're very happy with the president's decision. I mean, I don't, I don't know what else I can say. Like, we were just, as reporters, flabbergasted that FBI agents would really be calling the deputy press secretary of the White House to register a complaint about Comey. And, of course, we learn after the fact that that's completely made up. It's not even uh, stretching the truth. Sarah Sanders acknowledged in her, in her under oath interview uh, with Robert Mueller that she pulled that out of thin air. 
So what does this report say about the presidency? You know, it reveals a presidency of paranoia and chaos and dysfunction. And these are all things that we knew to some degree, but we've not seen it all laid out together in one place, in one portrait. And it shows you the extent to which one man uh, and his impulses and psyche every single day runs the government and, and the way his aides are just reacting to his spasms of the day. And and the scheming is all there in plain sight, and yet there's also so much incompetence. He wants to do all these things but can't actually get them done. I think the report shows the naivete of some of those in the White House. There's this incredible scene very early on, uh, I think the day after the election, where Hope Hicks gets a strange kind of phone call and email from a Russian with a message from Vladimir Putin, and she and Jared Kushner are running around trying Trump Tower trying to figure out if it's real or not, and they don't know the name of the Russian ambassador, and they have to they figure out how to contact the Russian embassy, and it just shows this sort of rank incompetence and naivete among some of these officials who are so new to government, have never worked in this capacity, don't really understand the law fully or what the restraints or norms are like, and, and how they're operating at the whims of a president who has very little control of his own impulses. Philip Rucker is a White House reporter for The Post. If the system rolls out, as the Trump administration is hoping it will soon. What are your thoughts about the commercially raised pork? Now, if uh, the whole country's going that way, I guess, uh, uh, no, I'm done. I'm done eating pork. That's it. Kim Kindy has been reporting on how the Trump administration is trying to change the way that they regulate pork. I'm Kimberly Kindy, and I'm a reporter on the national desk doing investigative reporting. Hello. Hey, hey, Joe, can you hear me? It's Kimberly. Yeah, but I got to get on the other phone. During that reporting, she called up a former food inspector for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. My name is Joe Ferguson. And he told Kim about the process for inspecting pork and how that could all soon change. Well, in traditional, it's USDA personnel that actually do the the inspecting of the carcasses. Broadly speaking, like, how does this process work now? The whole process starts in the traditional system with live hogs showing up to the plant and USDA inspectors looking for diseased hogs. Then USDA veterinarians look at the diseased hogs, the ones that aren't sick. Seven USDA inspectors along the line inspect them during the entire process from the time that they are killed until the very end end of the slaughter line where they start, you know, chopping them into hams and chops. Under the new proposed system, plant workers would be the ones who would observe the live hogs when they arrive at the plant and remove the ones that are diseased, not a USDA inspector, not a USDA veterinarian. The USDA has put the packer processor in in charge of uh, ensuring food safety. Then on the inspection line, where there used to be seven USDA inspectors, there will be three. That's in your average large plant. So right now, there is a limit on line speeds. You can process 1,106 hogs an hour. 
But if the rule is approved, then there'll be no limit. And the estimate is that, you know, they could run them on average 12% faster. When I've talked to workers and to inspectors in traditional plants, they say it goes too fast as it is. I'm imagining that scene from I Love Lucy where the conveyor conveyor belt keeps speeding up faster and faster and faster that you can't just, you can't keep track of it anymore. If one piece of candy gets past you and into the packing room unwrapped, you're fired. Yes, ma'am. Let her When you talk to workers and inspectors... They sound like they feel like Lucy and Ethel. Why is this happening? Well, it depends on who you're talking to. The USDA and the pork industry say that this is a way to modernize inspections, that the things that make people sick are the microscopic pathogens that are on hogs or other meat, and that the naked eye can't detect these things. I'm uh, Dan Kovich, staff veterinarian for the National Pork Producers Council. I think when we're looking at the new swine inspection system, what it is, it gives a framework for plants that want to make investments in new technology, more cutting-edge food safety interventions. It's giving them more freedom and flexibility of how their line runs. If you talk to the people who say that they're very afraid of this because they do think it will be a food safety hazard or a potential one, say that because the lines are moving so fast, they cannot identify properly fecal matter, which is just what it sounds like, which is an Uh. indication that you have possible pathogens that could make people sick, E. coli, salmonella. To them, they say it's really important to have the line speeds at at a rate where you can identify that very important indicator. Also under the new system, even though they're saying that a modern system really relies on test results The USDA does not have any plans to test for salmonella, one of the most serious pathogens that you can find in hogs. So all of these changes, these are new proposals under the Trump administration. Right. This has been in the works for a very long time. They started a a pilot project, you know, had five plants start testing this system all the way back to 1997, 1998. So it's been around a long time in just those five plants. And the safety records for these plants haven't been always so good. There was an IG report that found that some of them were among the worst hog plants in the nation. There was a 2013 government accountability report that found that this pilot project of just five plants was so small that they could not make a determination as to whether or not it would work safely across the board. There were no extra plants added. There's still just five of them. So it was put on the back burner during the Obama administration after things didn't go so well with the speeding up the lines and poultry plants. But it was moved to the front burner when Trump was elected and they started working on it. And so they are now at a place where it could be finalized as soon as next month. Oh, wow. That's really soon. And then this could become the standard practice at meatpacking factories around the country. Well, it would just be for hogs. And at this point, USDA says they have 40 plants that plan to do it. So it probably wouldn't be all hog plants because there are 612 of them. But collectively, they will produce 90% of the pork that we eat in America. 
I think that a lot of people would be really surprised that under this proposed change, plant employees would be doing many of the same tasks that USDA inspectors used to do. Like, you would think that you'd want the people on the outside doing these kinds of safety checks. Well, I can tell you what the USDA and pork industry say. They say that USDA will be able to use their remaining resources, the inspectors, to do work off the slaughter line to ensure that at critical points, safety tests and assessments are being performed. So they're saying that even though they have a smaller number, they're going to be positioned in a way that they will be more effective. The concern is that it will be so easy for some disease to get through and for people to get sick when it comes to the kinds of inspections that and the kind of oversight and the kind of sorting that the plant employees will be doing, that training is completely up to the plant to develop and give. Casey Lynn Gallimore with the North American Meat Institute. So right now there are no standards uh, for the training that they have to complete except for the outcome. Plant employees will be shadowed by USDA inspectors. So they'll have to show through outcomes that they're making the right decision. You know, the U.S. food supply and the U.S. pork supply is the safest in the world. We, we set the standard. You know, our members take that responsibility extremely seriously. It's, it's not a responsibility that we take lightly. It's in the best interest of all of our members to make sure that we are producing the safest food for our consumers. And we view this as a, another tool in the toolkit. Is there a possibility that part of the reason why this is happening is because it's cheaper for the federal government? Well, in terms of USDA, they will save money. USDA will save about $6 million a year by using this plan. And the larger plants will, by increasing their line speeds by about 12%, should be able to see increased profits of about $2 million annually. Oh, so everybody's making money off of this. Well, there are a lot of critics that say this is all about money. When I interviewed USDA inspectors and USDA workers who you know, cut the pork into pork chops and hams, along with food safety advocates like Food and Water Watch. They said that a lot of it is about the industry making a lot of money. A lot of it is about USDA being able to say, look, we saved taxpayers' money. But to what end? My name is Tony Corbo. I'm at Food and Water Watch. And we are very fearful that turning that responsibility over to plant employees, there is an inherent conflict of interest. The plant employees are beholden to their companies. They need to keep the production line moving at the expense of food safety. So you first reported this story a few weeks ago. What has the reaction been since then? There's been so much reaction, a number of editorials, um, number of columns, op-eds, almost all of them expressing true concern about what this would mean for food safety. On the other hand, USDA has really pushed back. They say that the tasks that the plant workers are doing, even though they were once considered inspection duties, they aren't truly USDA inspections, and that USDA inspectors will still be in the plants in full force at key points along the line where they believe it really matters when it comes to food safety. We stand by our story. One thing that you've pointed out in your reporting is that this isn't the only industry where some responsibilities that were previously handled by federal inspectors 
are now being turned over to plant employees. Right. Well, you know, it's not just under the Trump administration. It has been going on for a really long time. The FAA allowed Boeing to do its own safety inspections on their 737 MAX jet. And we've had two fatal crashes, a devastating consequence. And so far, the preliminary investigation indicates it could be a flight control system that Boeing signed off on. And then, yes, FAA approved, but they didn't do the safety assessment. The private company did. Because of the FAA, the question right now is this rule, this possible system is pending and possibly going to be approved soon. The question is, have we gone too far? And is there a concern that when it comes to changing the process of how inspections are done, that those changes are being pushed through the government and pushed into practice too quickly? I think it's more that governments and administrations come and go, but the industries are steadfast. And if they don't get it through in one administration, they're back. And the memory is sometimes lost and the, and the knowledge is sometimes lost from one administration to the next administration. And they're up against an industry that hasn't gone anywhere. They haven't changed parties. They know what they want and they're on it and they stay on it. And little by little or in one big swoop, they make progress with being able to have more control. Kimberly Kindy is an investigative reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. So we have one, two, three, four, five, six weed cookbooks here. This is Maura Jedkiss. She's a food reporter for The Post, and she's been writing about the rise of cannabis cookbooks. We've seen kind of a, a little boom in the last few months. There have been a couple of cannabis books that have come out, and, you know, they've, they've really evolved over the years, too. They've gotten more complex, more challenging. They've gotten a much better sense of design, too. They, they look nicer on your shelf, actually. We've come a long way from the days of just dumping a pile of weed into a batch of brownie mix and calling it a dessert. Everyone's so fancy these days. My name is Ungayo Bilam. I'm uh, the cannabis expert on the Netflix show Cooking on High. And he thought that the reason these books were getting more complex is because people were trying to fight the stigma. The people who are part of it really want it to be something that's looked at as professional, especially as it becomes decriminalized. So there's kind of a respectability about treating it like this incredibly scientific, complex process. And it also, you know, in a way, the more complex it becomes, the more sophisticated it is. And so it's kind of like wine, like learning about wine. The more complex your cannabis is, the more it seems like pairing a fine wine and like learning all the properties of wine and becoming a sommelier. I mean, listen, Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg have a TV show together, right? So everybody wants to be the Martha Stewart of weed. Everybody wants to be the Anthony Bourdain of weed. But a lot of people like to be upscale and kind of fancy. And, and the beauty of it is you no longer have to hide it. Like, it was harder, maybe it was harder to have your cannabis cookbook on your coffee table because you don't know who's coming over and how they feel about weed. But now weed is legal in a lot of states. And you're an adult, so you can do whatever the F you want. And so why not have a nice, fancy weed coffee book on your table? And then people can take a look at it and be like, oh, you know, I never really thought about making French toast with cannabis before, or making a cannabis-infused maple syrup. 
you know, you learn a bit of botany, you learn a bit of chemistry, you end up doing some actual math to be able to make these recipes. The sections that describe, you know, how to select your cannabis, how to decarboxylate it, they all really use this like complex chemical term. It's just heating it, really. This book has an actual math equation here that they use to calculate the infusion needed for each recipe. And so that's um, desired dosage per serving in milligrams of THC times number of servings in the recipe divided by the infusion potency of milligrams of THC per gram. And that equals the amount of infusion needed for the recipe in grams. So like this is a math equation. <laughs> I don't know. I don't do that much math when I cook regular food. I mean, the thing that's really funny, though, is that as these books get more complex, like the recipes have also gotten really complex. And it's funny to me because, you know, I, I really wonder, it's impossible to know, but like what is the overlapping sliver in the Venn diagram of stoners and like really, really talented cooks? Because some of these recipes are quite difficult. Like your average cook would not really be able to execute them. I really wonder how many people are actually doing these recipes, especially the really hard ones. Like I think for a lot of people, these books could be a coffee table book and they're sort of aspirational and you page through them because having it on your shelf makes you look cool. But like maybe you're not actually making all of these recipes. Maura Judkiss writes about food for the post. My parents will be so proud of this one. (laughs) It's okay, my dad was a hippie. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalie Kasika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 